I'm Dr. Kimberly Manning. And this is Dr. Ashley McMullen. And you're listening to the Human Doctor Podcast, where we explore the human side of medicine, along with teaching, living, learning, and all things in between. Using the power of storytelling, conversation, and connectedness. Hey, we're two dope academic internal medicine doctors, but we ain't your doctors. So if you perceive anything we say here as medical advice, no, it ain't that. Also, the things we say, they only reflect our brilliant black woman magic mind and not our employers. You could have been anywhere, y'all, but you chose to be here with us and we appreciate you. Let's Let's go. go. Coming at you live and direct from Grady Memorial Hospital Mm -hmm. after hours. Yes, the attending Dr. Kimberly Manning is on the wards. I'm doing a 14 day stint. Mm, man. Going hard for 14 days, teaching and learning and co-creating plans and enjoying the privilege of caring for human beings with a great team of residents and students. Well, might I add that you look really good doing it. I want to just point out Jules is looking like she got a little, a little upgrade. Did you get a haircut recently? Oh, Okay, must I say um, the truth is that when I leave you, I am going to get my hair done. So wow, very, very happy that you are complimenting her greasy and two weeks old. But hey, she got a haircut before we went to the Delta Convention in Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. Okay, she's holding on to dear life for that. (laughs) Well, she looks good. Well, thank you. She thanks you. And for the people who are absolutely confused by this, you know, Black people, we be getting our hair done a lot. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I shouldn't say all Black people because some do, some don't. But I, mm-hmm. I am a person who goes to see my hairstylist probably once every two weeks, sometimes every week, depending upon what's going on. Mm-hmm. That's actually very common in our community. So, yeah. Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's always a little tough to begin a new week. You know, it feels like there's a lot of stuff that's on the ever-growing to-do list, but, you know, I've gotten into a better practice of starting my my day with a little bit of mindfulness and meditation. It just kind of resets my my perspective on the, the bigger picture yeah. and all the things that feel so important and so heavy actually suddenly don't feel that way, at least not, not to the same degree. So I'm actually feeling good. I took myself out for a run before settling down to do any work. So that was helpful. Yeah, I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. And I I like this thing I've been saying to my team a lot lately, which is what you say impacts what you see. Mm-hmm. And I've said it enough now where like our team is kind of saying it a lot. Because if I say that I'm tired and it's going to be a rough week, what I see is that I'm tired and that this week ahead of me is rough. If what I say is I'm getting ready to walk into this this really busy hospital and we are over capacity and we are on diversion and all the teams are full and my team is already capped and it's really, really busy and dang, I haven't had a day off, then that's how I'm going to approach the day. Or I could say what a privilege it is to be able to walk into this hospital and care for these vulnerable patients. Um, and to hear their stories and to be the person that they're trusting to help them to feel better along with these amazing people that I've also been entrusted to uh, to influence and teach. This is so dope. That's what I had to tell myself on Sunday when I was walking into the hospital. You know, it's like, 
Sunday. I kind of want to be with my family. But what a privilege it is that it's me. Yeah. Yeah. And granted, like, you know, I I get that I can be annoyingly optimistic and sunny sometimes about things. And I get it that our well-being matters and people should not be like spread all the way threadbare thin. Yeah. But I do still also think what you say can impact what you see. Absolutely. You got to watch the tongue. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I like it. You got anything you learned or experienced this week that is worth sharing? Yeah. Well, two things, actually. There's this big garden on Lake Merritt. I think I've talked about it before, but one of the exhibits that I occasionally get to go into, it's only open during certain times, is like this big bonsai garden. Bonsai being like those little trees. Cool trees. Style. Yeah, the, the miniature trees. Uh-huh. There's a, a tree in there that's like almost, I think about 1600 years old that oh, wow. cultivated. So wow. that's pretty cool. So for folks out in the Bay looking for a nice, sunny and free vibe to, to check out on the weekends, go to the Lake Merritt Gardens. And then as I've been really active and outdoors, I got to shout out this clothing brand that has taken all of my money. It's called Actively Black. I like that brand. Yeah. So the the founder, Lanny, is actually friends with my brother. Oh, um, I'll hook your girl up. I know, right? It's like, <laughs> brand ambassador, please. But both me and my brother, Michael, are just like, you know, we just need to have a standing account with this brand. It's on par with other high-end athletic brands. Like, I mean, Nike, Adidas, but it's Black-owned. And there's a real positive message that that's centered in their mission and really are giving back to Black communities and really promoting Black mm. well-being, Black wealth. And the clothes are dope. So, I mean, it's it feels good to, to invest in that clothing brand. It's the only clothes I actually buy for myself. <laughs> Anything other than athletic gear is usually stuff that I've gotten from my sister-in-law's closet. <laughs> Yeah, their their um their advertising campaign is really well done too. You should pass that on to your friend. I I find it very intriguing and makes me want to spend money. So yeah, well it's working then. <laughs> yeah, I am listening to a book right now, but I'll wait until I finished it to to give more on it. But I've just been reading a lot about methamphetamine addiction mm. and how just heartbreakingly difficult it is to manage, um, particularly our patients who use methamphetamine through injection. And just spending a lot of time thinking about that and the illness script of methamphetamine use and how people have these periods of abstinence and then heavy duty use and then all the things that make it just so difficult and what it does to dopaminergic receptors and all that stuff. So mostly I don't have a deep thought about it. It's just more compassion for how challenging it is for people who are living with a meth use disorder. And I have come into contact with um, patients experiencing uh, meth use disorders during my times on the hospital service. So just thinking Mm -hmm. about that. And um, actually, it makes me think of this movie that is a very hard watch, but probably worth watching. I think it's called Beautiful Boy. It's with, um, shoot, I'm blanking on his name. What's the dude's name that was in the office and that was in The 40-Year-Old Virgin? What's his oh, name? Oh, it's Steve Carell. Steve Carell. He's the father, yeah. a beautiful, amazing, brilliant, smart son mm-hmm. who is battling a methamphetamine addiction. And it's terrifying because his son is like anybody's son, right? And he's doing all the things that 
any sort of really smart, accomplished person does, which is try to fix it in all the ways. Like you just can't reason it away and you can't hug it away, yell it away, money it away. It's actually so heartbreaking to watch and, and they're both so good at it that I, I had to turn it off like two or three times. It took me two days to watch it. But I think to humanize the experiences of individuals experiencing methamphetamine addiction specifically and their families, it's worth watching to honor them. Mm. So, yeah, you know, no bow on top. It's just, I see you. And if you're listening to this and you are connected to somebody or have personally experienced methamphetamine use disorder, yeah, my, my heart is with you. Yes, and mine too. Well, some, uh, some solid recommendations, but we are gathered here on this fine afternoon slash early evening to take in more stories, more wisdom, more insights from none other than the Dr. Kimberly Manning. It's my favorite time of, of the week because I get to have a front row seat to this. I have no idea what she's about to say. So <laughs> she <I'm> don't even <laughs> and neither does Dr. Manning. So. <laughs> uh, uh, sis, what's what's the what that you just came up with? I know, right? Because um y'all don't know this, but I have like been struggling with what my what is for this today. But I think I have settled on a word. And okay. the word is stand. Stand. Yes. Stand. Yeah. I was hearing a song in my head after it played randomly on the radio. Can I ask? Can I guess? Oh, yeah. Is it a gospel song? No. Okay. I know. What you, I, I think you <laughs> thought I was going to say, after you've done all, all you, you can, can, you just stand. stand. <laughs> yes, that's the jam. That's yeah. The jam. Um, no, it is actually an old song by the Pretenders called I'll Stand By You. Mm. I'll stand by you, won't let it, nobody hurt you. Wow. I'll stand by you. So I'm kind of hearing that song in my head a little bit um, as I get ready to tell this story. So I'm going to take you back to my residency days back in Cleveland, Ohio, the land. And I was a Mad Peds resident. So my internship lasted a total of 18 months. So even after I had been there a year, I still had like six more months as an intern, which kind of had me in this interesting juxtaposition where I was kind of like peers with people who were supervising as residents, but also still doing things in an intern role on teams, mm. which was cool. I, I knew a lot of people. So I did a combined internal medicine pediatrics residency. This was when I was on PEDS. One of the rotations we did was in the neonatal intensive care unit. The neonatal intensive care unit at our hospital, it was a level three neonatal intensive care unit, which means the sickest babies, the smallest, tiniest, most high need babies were, were brought to our hospital. And uh, we were there as residents to manage them. And it was really a terrifying place to be. And on this particular month, there were always two or three interns and like two or three residents and then our attendings and some fellows. But the way the teams worked, you would end up sort of being with one intern more than the other. And I'm going to change the name of this, this co-intern of mine. But I had a co-intern, I'll call her Parul. And Parul was originally from India. And she had gone to medical school and had done some medical training there, but then came to the States 
and was repeating her residency. And for those who are unfamiliar, many of our colleagues who are um, international medical graduates, many of them will have experience outside of the U.S., but um, to gain licensure in the U.S. have to repeat residency. Mm-hmm. And that's where she was. She was a little older than me, but not a lot older than me, but she had a fairly thick accent and she was somebody who was kind of shy and not cool, not somebody that you would meet and say, oh, she's really cool. She's not the, she was not the it girl. Mm. In fact, she somehow fell into this space where people sort of thought that she wasn't a good resident. You know, she was kind of hard to understand sometimes. She was anxious because, you know, she wanted to do a good job, but people weren't always nice. She had not lived in the U.S. for very long. So it was all just very kind of lumpy and uncomfortable. Mm. But when I began working with her, We spent a lot of time together because of the way that NICU rotation is set up. And I would learn that she was probably one of the smartest people in the whole hospital. She knew what to do, man. I mean, those kids were sick. And this was before we had the level of supervision that we have now in our ICUs. The fellows went home, the attending went home, and we would be on call with senior residents and like just we could call people, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But Peru knew what to do. She understood the physiology. She was great technically. She could get lines in. She was great. When it came to those patients, those little babies, she was a beast. Nobody could touch her. And I was so enamored by what she could do. But also I got to know her. And, um, you know, we had very little in common initially, but I came to really like her. She became my friend. And we got real cool, you know, because she would teach me a lot of stuff. She showed me how to do a lot of things. I learned so much from her. And at the end of that really busy, demanding month, Peru was my friend. Mm. She was my friend. But she was still the same person in this residency program that everybody had these opinions about that she's not good or she's awkward or she's weird or, oh, my God, who are you? Who's on your team? Ugh. (laughs) Oh, Lord, I feel bad for you. You know, people would say stuff like that. Um, In fact, one thing that even makes me smile is I remember one day after we had done our NICU rotation, I was at a morning report and I needed to present a patient in the morning post-call from the wards. And Peru was on another rotation, but she was an outstanding cook and um, was my first introduction to authentic Indian food. And she would bring food for me all the time. So that morning she was like, oh, I brought you something for breakfast. And she gave me this little egg sandwich that I took two big bites of before I walked up to the <laughs> to the <laughs> podium to present my patient. And as I start presenting to the room, I just feel like my lip starting to heat up. I feel like I'm developing a big swollen angioedema face. <laughs> and I'm like, oh God, you know, Peru has given me something really hot. And um, sure enough, uh, I look at the sandwich and it has this big three peppers across it that I've bit into. She's like, oh, I thought you like spicy. <laughs> But um, and that, that was like one of our favorite things to like to joke about her trying to escalate my ability to tolerate spice. Mm-hmm. So um, I give you all that background to tell you about something that happened one day. We were in the resident lounge and back then, you know, we didn't have all the electronic medical record and cell phones and all these ways. So when somebody was getting ready to be on call, everybody met in the resident lounge. And that is how we handed off our patients. Everybody sat together and talked. I was going to be on call that evening and I had come into the room and I was actually pretty excited to learn that Parul was on call too for another team. So I was like, oh, that'd be cool. 
I get there and there's a lot of residents there, one of whom is the resident that's covering me. He has already been selected to be chief resident. He's very well liked, really charming. Everybody respects him so much. A few other residents at his level, some of my co-interns and some second year residents and everybody's kind of hanging out in there, either waiting for sign out or just hanging out, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. So everybody's there, but parole is not there yet. And everyone's talking and they're like, who are you covering tonight? And my senior resident was like, oh, I'm covering Kimberly. And he's like, so basically I'm going to be asleep. And we're like laughing and, you know, so everybody's kind of talking and somebody goes, oh, but Brad has, you know, who, mm. and someone goes, who's that? And they're like, <laughs> parole. And everybody's like winces and goes, ooh, and, and I'm, I'm telling you, there's easily eight people in the room. Mm. So this guy who was my senior resident, who was going to be chief resident, and, and I keep saying that over and over again, because we all looked up to him and he was smart and funny and just loved by the program. He launched into what was really like the equivalent of a stand-up comedy routine, talking about her. Wow. He mimicked the way she talked. She had a little bit of a lisp. He was talking like her with her fairly thick Hindi accent and moving his head like her. And, and people were just hollering in laughter. And I was sitting right there and I was kind of looking a little bemused, you know, because I didn't want to stand out as somebody who was going to other myself. And, you know, one person's like, oh, my God, she is so bad. And one guy goes, oh, she's not an assassin, though. And everybody starts laughing. And my senior says, you know what? I figured out what she's like. And this is a pediatrics residency. So you got to understand we we think about things in terms of pediatrics. She's like an accessory nipple, useless in the way, and you wish you could figure out a way to get rid of it. Everybody fell on the floor laughing. And I felt like I actually felt hot because I was like, she's my friend. She wasn't just my co-intern. At this point, we were friends. Mm. I didn't say, it makes me so mad at myself. I didn't say nothing. I just sat there and I was kind of laughing because I didn't want to, you know, I didn't, I didn't want, I didn't want that to turn on me. Yeah. It was fucked up. It was so bad. And excuse my, my language for those who um, don't like profanity, but there's not another word for it. It was fucked up. And then she walked in the room. Mm. Everybody got quiet and they did sign out. And that girl was lonely. Nobody ever got to see what I saw in the NICU. Because the learning climate was so bad for her that she couldn't even spread her wings all the way out to be the boss that she was. And on those late nights in the NICU, she was safe. Mm. And so she could flex, you know, mm -hmm. she could like do her thing. And she knew more than just neonatology. She knew a lot of stuff. She was smart and she was decisive and she was good with patients and kids. And she never really got a chance to do that. Mm -hmm. And I did not stand up for her. And I know why I didn't. I was scared. You know, I was othered in my program. I was one of very few black people in my program and people thought I was a good resident. Mm -hmm. And I really regret that. I yeah. really, I don't have a lot of regrets either. Yeah. I really don't. I'm fortunate in that. 
I regret that so much. It was so wrong. And um, that one time stands out because of what he said. But there were other times too, you know, where people talked about her. And I didn't, I didn't, I didn't say anything. I didn't defend her. And, you know, there's a piece of me that's like, oh, I, I don't know if I even knew how, Mm -hmm. you know, the person who was saying this was a really good looking white man who was about to be the chief resident that everybody loved. And I, I just, I, 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 I have, I have stood up for people since then. Mm-hmm. I always remembered her and I always wished I had had the courage to, to stand up for her or to even just not laugh or to just say, okay, y'all come on. That's, that's enough. I could have even said that I didn't do nothing. Mm. an accessory nipple <laughs> useless in the way and something you wish you could get rid of it's fucked up mm. and then you wonder how people like don't like do well in certain settings right yeah how can you do well if all your peers think that of you yeah yeah how how, how can you possibly win there's no amount of feedback and remediation somebody can give you to help you overcome a giant heavy cloak of disapproval mm. in a learning environment but i was her friend and i should have i should have stood up for her mm. yep and i wonder where she is i don't even i'm not even in touch with her anymore yeah what kind of friend was i mm. Mm. It matters that, first of all, you were her friend and that you brought this story to this space. I'm really, really glad that you shared this because I'm sure everybody's listening is thinking about times where we could have stood up. I'm sorry. Mm. I haven't even, I haven't really ever even thought that out or talked it out before. Yeah. I'm so ashamed of that though, because she deserved better. Mm. And I do pay it forward. Don't get me wrong. You know, I do. But, you know, if somebody is listening to this and they are in a space where reputational inertia is causing people to crap on somebody, throw a flag on the place. Stand up. Because, mm. you you know, I, I don't know if I knew my own strength. I don't even know if I trusted myself. Maybe I could have used the fact that I was in good standing to turn the tide. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But she oh. just, she deserved better. Absolutely. You know, especially intern, you're at such a vulnerable time. You know, when you're in a senior level position, everything has to be weighted differently when it comes to how you talk about, how you interact with interns and students who are in that environment. And, you know, it just makes me think a lot about that, that rising chief. I don't think I really appreciated the difference in experiences among residents until I became a chief. I think I underappreciated that until I recognized like, yes, this is, you know, this was an environment that I thrived in, but this environment is not safe for everybody. And if somebody is struggling or not thriving, it is not your chance to point them out and use them as a butt for your jokes. Like you should want everybody to thrive. 
And I get that that was a different time, you know, it's a lot of stuff people got away with back then, you know, because now we have like whole curricula around upstanding and yeah. Not yeah. I mean, because it's like totally a microaggression. How he was talking like her and making gestures like her. It, it was macroaggression. That's... Yeah, like <laughs> macroaggression, right? It was foul. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, th this was in a time where that was probably modeled for him somewhere. You know, it was mm -hmm. probably modeled for him that we can do that. We can make fun of people. We can make fun of patients. Mm hmm. And, you know, yeah, like, fortunately, culture has moved in such a way where that's a little less socially acceptable. Mm -hmm. But there's still places in our lives where somebody deserves for us to stand up for them. And mm -hmm. whatever forces that we have to, like, push out of the way to, to do what's right, we need to. And yeah. I, you know, and I wonder, like, how did that even impact my ability to be my best, mm -hmm. right? Because it wasn't just her. I remember feeling icky that whole night working with my senior resident. I remember feeling like I was horrible. Mm. What kind of friend are you? Because mm. I've always taken great pride in being a good friend. Like, yeah. I'm a good friend. I'm like, I'm a good sister. I'm a good friend. Mm -hmm. I was not a good friend in that moment. Yeah. I wasn't. And I like talking through this story because... I, I need people to like it. Like it'd be really cool for us to just get on here and only talk about the moments where we liked. Oh yeah, and then we didn't. Nobody knew what was wrong, and I came on service and yep. I cracked the case. <laughs> they asked me to be the chief resident, you know. <laughs> yeah. But no, like we we fall short. You know that's 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 the beauty of the growth mindset. You fall short. You look at the you parts and you say, you know what? Let me see how I'm gonna do this differently in the future. Mm -hmm. And if I could do that over again, I would have said something. I would have said something. I would have been like, okay, y'all, you know, look, I'm not a good person to say this in front of because uh, Perul is my friend, so I'm going to need y'all to chill. Mm -hmm. Or however, find my way to say it. It doesn't even have to be a big dramatic thing. Like, damn, y'all, come on. That's enough. Yeah. Uh, really? Yeah. Um, or even told somebody, you know, but mm. not participated in being in the audience of your stand-up routine. Yeah. Which was really probably just an indication of how you felt about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Man, thank you for, for telling that story. I, I was just thinking, like, this is one of the few times I've heard you mention a regret. And the other thing that stands out to me is just this assumption of international medical graduates not having as much um, skill where the reality is they have much more in many, in many cases. Yeah. I mean, you know, and depending upon where you're coming from, you might be somewhere where the resources are less and you have really much stronger diagnostic skills. You know, her diagnostic skills were just bananas. I mean, that girl was like no joke. And it wasn't enough materials for you to be like, oh, missing the IV three times. You know, mm -hmm. you need to be getting the IV in. You need to be getting the line in. So she was just technically so efficient and good. Yeah. But that was out of necessity from, you know, the environment that she had been in before. So, yeah, I, I like that you said that because I, many of our colleagues who are international graduates and, and come to the U.S., they, they bring with them a wealth of knowledge. I mean, it, it feeds into our, our overall argument around 
why we need diversity. Like it should be welcome to have folks with such differing and valuable perspectives and, and skills to enrich our programs, but we never see it like that. Yeah. Or at least we don't see it enough. Yeah. And you know, it's funny because usually when I think of things like what happened that day, I think about like middle school because that's where people are like mean. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was like middle school mean. Mm-hmm. And I think middle school mean happens all the time in our adult life. Yeah. And it's not okay. Mm-hmm. It's just not, it's not okay, man. Whenever I find myself picking somebody apart, I say, I got to look at the me parts. I, I must not be feeling good right now. I must be feeling insecure about me mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. So my friend, thank you for that really, really spicy egg sandwich you gave me that almost <laughs> made me think I was having anaphylaxis in the middle of resident report for teaching me all about the physiology of respiratory distress syndrome in neonates and how to perfectly get an art line into a 24 weeker. Um, And um, thank you for um, demonstrating to me what it looks like to be resilient in the face of a storm and hostility mm-hmm. because she, she made it through. Yes. She made it through. And if she made it through that, then mm-hmm. talk about determination. Absolutely. Yep. Well, I want to, I want to add my voice, sending love to your friend and also anybody who's listening, who finds yourself in an environment where you are struggling to find a sense of home and companionship and community we we see you and we are here for you we love you yes we do and what they say should not affect what you see Mm -hmm. Mm. it's a word it's a word right there sis well on that note um as much as i love talking to you willow needs a walk and i need to leave grady hospital (laughs) (laughs) Can't leave Willow waiting. No, we can't. But I love you so much. And I really appreciate you listening to me hysterically cry. <laughs> it's all good. You know. oh, a microphone. I was like, oh, should we, should we pause? Should we take I a- know. I know. Because I'm having a little moment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I love you too, sis, for, for being all of yourself and all of your vulnerability into this space. We, we are better for it. So. I appreciate you. Well, I love you, sis. I'll talk to you soon. That wraps up this week's episode of the Human Doctor Podcast. Special thanks to our favorite brother gastroenterologist, Dr. Chuma Obiname for the beats. Shout out to the Dr. Ashley McMullen for editing and production. Mad love to our podcast family at The Nocturnist and the Clinical Problem Solvers, our med Twitter fam. And especially shout out to all of you, our listeners. Until next week, remember, we see you and you are enough. Holla! Holla.